As always, it's such a delight to be here with you all this morning to uh, remember the Lord this morning and now to be able to share with you some thoughts that the Lord has laid on my heart over the last weeks and actually years. I'd ask of you to open up your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 12. And while you're turning there, it is Father's Day. Brian was mentioning earlier how that as you get older, you begin to appreciate qualities of your father that you maybe didn't appreciate in their fullness as as you were growing up as a young boy, young girl in the home. I have to tell you that my father, to me, was, and I've expressed this here before, But my father, to me, was my hero in every way. He was my hero. Not only was he a war hero, having been awarded the Silver Star for battle at Bloody Nose Ridge in Pelau, too. And we're just, uh, not only was he a hero in that way, but he was a giant to me in, in faith. He really did teach me what my Heavenly Father was like. I can remember growing up that oftentimes in my teenage years, I did not get involved with a lot of the things that my friends were doing. And it wasn't because I was some super righteous good boy. It was because I knew that if my father found out, it would break his heart. And I could not break my dad's heart. I just love that man. Lou Desiderio, my sister's husband, made this comment on a post I made about my dad the other day. He said, they stopped making men like him years ago. He was a wonderful, wonderful father. And he taught me about a greater father still. The one who loves us Loves us with a never-ending love. And the love that reached out to us and saved us and delivered us. So be thankful for your fathers. Be thankful for those who have raised you and pointed you to, to Christ. And if you didn't have a father that pointed you to Christ, you can still be thankful for a man who supported you and took care of you. So we're thankful. We're thankful. I, in particular, am thankful for my, for my dad. And I miss him dearly. I miss him dearly. Many times I just wish I could talk to him again. Just get guidance from him again. But I have a hope. And one day, I will see him again. I will see him again. And I'll be with him again. So I look forward to that day as well. Thank you for your prayers for us as we've been around doing ministry in many parts of the country. We appreciate your ongoing support for us. And we appreciate your prayers so very much. There have been many, many times when we have reflected back on, on the kind, kind, gracious support of Branford in our lives over the years. And we are 
very, very thankful to you all. Luke chapter 12, please. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 49. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. And this is our Lord speaking. I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to bring peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Then he said to the multitude, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, Immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather, and there is, hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And let's pray. Father. We are grateful to Thee. Thank You so very much for all that You have done for us. And Father, as we look into Your Word this morning, we recognize that we need Thy help. We need the work of Thy Spirit in order for us to understand, in order for us to grow. And if there's going to be any eternal value in the things that are spoken today, it will be because Your Spirit takes it and places it in our hearts. And so we ask for your help this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We have all had those moments in our lives that are characterized as watershed moments in our lives. We have all experienced those times in our lives which are watershed moments, that event that changed the course of your life, that changed the direction in which you were going and put you on a totally different path than what you were anticipating. We may have had many watershed moments in our lives, but as you boil those moments down, you will generally come up with a handful of moments. And if you take those handful of moments and boil them down yet again, you will come up with one or two moments in your life that you will consider to be watershed moments. Moments that changed your life and the direction of your life forever. And that you will never be the same because of it. And some of those, some of those watershed moments can be dreadfully painful when we think of them. Others of them can bring us a sense of nostalgia. Others can bring to us a sense of, of looking at the providence of God and how He dealt in those issues 
dealt in my life in that specific way through his providence to bring me to where I am today. Take a few moments later on and just think through those specific times that altered the course of your life forever. Joyce and I were thinking the other day and talking about the time when her grandparents and her dad and her uncle and aunt were liberated from the POW camp in Los Banos in the Philippines on the day they were scheduled to be executed. On the day they were scheduled to be executed, elements from the 101st Infantry, I mean Airborne Division, came dropped 18 miles behind enemy lines, and along with Philippine guerrillas, liberated that camp when there was a contingent of like 10,000 Japanese within striking distance, and they brought all of these captives, over 3,000 souls in that camp, and they only expected there to be like 1,500 They didn't bring enough amphibious tanks to get them all out at once. And they had to bring them out in shifts. They had to walk through town in shifts to be brought down to Laguna Dubai to be taken across. But the remarkable thing that causes this to be one of those so-called watershed moments is that within that camp, there were about a thousand missionaries who had been interned there. Of those 3,000, there were about 1,000 missionary families. Some of them came from the Roman Catholic Church. Some of them came from many different denominations. But they were there in that camp. And just think of this one thing. Joyce's grandparents, her father and her uncle and her aunt. One family out of those 1,000. And from that one family came... Five generations of missionaries serving the Lord in the Philippines. Five generations from that one family. Was that not an event that changed the course of things? Was that not a part of God's providence and God's plan? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, as I was reflecting back, and I shared this with Joyce just the other day, As I was reflecting back on the watershed moments of my life, one of the moments in my life that changed the course of my life, outside of, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, our our decision to follow Christ. We'll, We'll get to that in a moment. But aside from that, one watershed moment in my life was the day I met Joyce. Now, I don't say that just out of sentiment, although I could say it that way. But because I met her, the course of my life and the direction of my life through the providence of God changed. And my whole life's work, which I consider to be my life's work, my whole life's work in ministry was a result of having met her in the providence of God. Would I have ever gone to the Philippines if I had not met Joyce? Maybe. We don't know what the Lord would do. But certainly, 
having met her and having experienced, she was born and raised there in that country. It set the course for my life's work in ministry for all of those years. Working among the urban poor for all of those years. Would I have done that? I don't know. But certainly I know this. I met Joyce. And through that it directed my course for, for many years to come. And even into, of course, the present time. For many years. Now, a watershed moment in all of our lives came when we came to know Christ as our Savior. Or it may have been that time when you rededicated your life to the Lord. You see, when I was a, when I was a young boy, I came to know Christ and I was just a little boy in Sunday school. And actually, it was at a conference I came to know the Lord. But I was just a young boy. And when I grew up, in the faith, grew up knowing all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It really wasn't until I became a teenager in high school that I rededicated my life to the service of God. And then again, that was a watershed moment. Changed the course of my life to this present day. The time we came to know Christ as our Savior, certainly one of those moments that changed the course of our lives unalterably changed the course of our lives. For others, that moment of receiving Christ and making Him King of their lives would bring persecution and hardships the likes of which we have never known. A decision made that I will follow the Lord Jesus brought them into severe times of persecution like we have never known. We have heard and read a lot lately about this persecution that is in the world today. This persecution, the execution and daily fear that accompanies so many Christians throughout this world today. We know that to be true, don't we? We read about it and we hear about it. Because of a choice that they made, their lives have been changed forever. According to an article, a recent article in Christianity Today, for the third year in a row, the modern persecution of Christians has reached another record high. A record high. According to the United States Department of State, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors simply because of their belief in Christ. Decision made. We all remember that one. Maybe we don't all because it's an older song now. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And if I remember the story correctly, and I may have the details wrong, I believe that was an Indian man who had, who had come out of Hinduism and had decided to follow Jesus. And as a result, he was forsaken by his family. He was turned away by his family. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. 
decisions made that alter life and change life forever. Now, the primary cause for the for the persecution today we know is Islamic terrorism, but there's also a, re, a, a rival in that of ethnic nationalism. In one publication I read, they were pleading for funds, and in their ad they wrote this, and I quote, Act today to end the persecution of Christians around the world. That will never happen. In fact, it will only get worse. It will only become more severe. And you recognize, as I do, even in the country in which we live, to claim the name of Christ now bears persecution. You know that. And we live in what could be termed the freest country in the world regarding religion. Every other religion but yours. What you believe. The relationship that you have with Christ. And you will face persecution. And it will only get worse and worse as the days go on. It will only increase in intensity as the time moves forward toward that time of tribulation that is coming upon this world. And if you've read ahead and you've read through the book of Revelation, you recognize that in that time of tribulation, those who have placed their faith in Christ will suffer severe persecution in that day. Severe persecution in that day. In the southern island of Mindanao, where I have visited several times, you've read currently of the persecution of Christians that is going on in that area, where a where a a autonomous region has been set up, where Sharia law can be exercised, and the, and the government says you cannot exercise Sharia law against the Christians who are living in your communities. But we know how that falls. And many have faced martyrdom simply because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's been going on down there for years. It's been going on down there for years. You've read the stories. And it's not a new phenomenon, my brothers and sisters. It's not a new phenomenon. Since the beginning of the church, it has been so. Since the beginning of the church, it has been so. Beginning within the communities of Israel. And then spreading out to the rest of the world. As Christianity spread, so did opposition. As Christianity spread, so did persecution spread. Till it reached out around the whole world. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ divided. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ divided. Jesus, as it were, drew a line in the sand. It was his mission, one of his mission statements, as it were. 
Do you suppose that I came to give peace on the earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. That is an awesome and powerful statement coming from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? What a powerful statement coming from His lips. I came to send fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. I've come to bring judgment. I've come to bring judgment on this earth. I've come to bring fire on this earth. And how I wish that it was already kindled. And what? How I wish that the time for the judgment has come. But, but I have a baptism to be baptized with. Before that time of judgment could come, he had a baptism to be baptized with. Now let's pause for, for a moment and look at this, this text that is before us. My study in the, in the Gospel of Luke, as I was sharing with a couple of brethren on Thursday night, my study in the, in the Gospel of Luke began maybe two years ago. And it's as I'm able to, through the other studies that I've been doing and preparations that I make for speaking at different places, I've been studying through, once again, the book of Luke, which brings us to the portion, because this is where I happen to be looking at right now. But as I've been looking through the book of Luke, my study has really been a little bit different in that I've been studying through the narratives of the book of Luke. And we recognize that Luke was not an eyewitness of the accounts that took place of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was not one that followed around our Lord Jesus Christ. He gained his material, got his material from other sources, and one of those sources being the Gospel of Mark. He got, his, he got material as he heard the story because he had become a believer. He had come to know Christ. Whether he came to know Christ through, through the ministry of, of Paul, who he accompanied, because when we get into the book of Acts, now he is an eyewitness of many of the events that took place. Maybe it was through Mark that he came to know Christ. I don't know how he came to know Christ. But we do know that he was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he compiled together all this material to give an accurate account of the things that had happened among them. And one of the interesting things, and this would be a good study for you. It will take you a lot of time. It will take you a lot of work. But it will be an interesting study for you is to look through the Gospel of Luke and follow Luke's usage of the word Lord. Kurios in, in the Greek. Now, there's two different words that are translated that. We're following this word kurios through, through his writings. And that's what I've been doing over the course of these last couple of years. And it'd be very interesting. It's very interesting to notice the way that, that Luke, now coming from, coming from a, a point of view where now he has heard all of the gospel accounts, he has come to know Christ as his Savior, he's gathering all his material together, and a Christology is beginning to form in Luke's mind. A Christology that Paul will develop later on and will be developed as we go through the, as you go through the book of Acts because Luke and Acts are like a continuum. And he begins to form this Christology, this study of who Christ is. And through this use of this word kurios, he will begin to weave right from the birth narratives, right from the stories of the birth, he will begin to show that this Lord is the same Lord that was seen in the Old Testament. 
It's the same Lord. And if you follow it along, in the way he uses it as forms of address, the way he uses it as anomalies, the way he uses it as subjects, the way he uses it to take the Lord of heaven, the Lord of hosts, and show that this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, they are one. He will make the divisions and he'll use it ambiguously oftentimes, but you'll see how that those two things he designs to show you that this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, is one with the Father. Be a real good study for you. Real good study for you. That's not what we're going to be talking about this morning, but it will be a real good study for you to look through the accounts and see where these things take place. Now, the, the last usage of this, of this word is in chapter 11. Where, the, where Peter asked this question directed to Jesus, he begins with, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all the people? And then the narrative says, and the Lord said, and then he goes on to give the parable that precedes this. He goes on to give the parable. Of course, in the parable, he uses the word kudos many, many times. Speaking of masters, which makes it very, very interesting because as he uses that word Lord over and over again, sometimes they translate it uh, master and you'd have to, you'd have to make sure it's the right word, but they use it over and over and over again. And in that parable, by the use of this word curios, over and over, he is directing this to himself. He's directing this. To himself, and I'll leave you to to see all the ins and outs of that. Luke has been developing this link, and in this parable of the faithful and the unfaithful servant, it forms a foundation, if you will, for the opening of our text this morning. It forms that foundation for the opening of of the words that he spoke here. Throughout the parable, he uses it over and over again, connecting the one who will come as well as the one who is. Now, the central theme of that parable, and you can read that parable later, and you've all read it before in the past, but the central theme of the parable that he just expressed was, be ready, be prepared, for you do not know the hour in which your Lord is coming in judgment. Be ready. Be prepared because you do not know the hour that your Lord is coming. You don't know. Now, of course, he's speaking this to Israel, and we recognize that. We, we make that distinction. But we also know and can see application-wise how it applies to us as well. Be ready. Be prepared. Do you know the hour that your Lord will return? Do you know it? Do you know it, my friends? Do you know the hour He will return? No. But are you prepared? Are you ready? Do you live your lives in such a way to honor the one who is coming? Do you live your lives in such a way to bring him glory? Now, it's rather important as we as you run through narratives, and you've done this many times yourself because you recognize the value of narrative, as you run through this narrative, it's important for you to locate where the Lord Jesus Christ is when he gives certain discourses, when he gives certain messages. 
Because we will recognize, don't we, that Galilee, where most of his ministry took place, was considered by the Jews in Judea and in Jerusalem to be those country people. Those people out there who do not really know the intricacies of the law. They have not studied. They are unlearned in the things of of our language of Hebrew. They are unlearned in those things. And they are the old country people that live out there. And they looked down on them. You remember Jesus came from Nazareth. What good can come out of Nazareth, they'd say. I mean, what good can come out of there? They considered Jesus to be one of those country bumpkins. He was one of those country guys. So where does this ministry take place? We recognize that Luke, when he puts his material together, he makes from from chapter 13, actually it begins like in chapter 9, 51 I think it is, he begins this look at, at the Lord Jesus as he is journeying toward Jerusalem for that final culmination of his ministry. He's journeying, seen as journeying toward Jerusalem. And you remember it says he had his face steadfast, his face set like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And that's why the Samaritans rejected him, remember? Because he he had his face set to go to Jerusalem. So the Samaritan says, we won't want to have anything to do with you. And you remember that he sent out those 70 to go out and to preach preach the Word. But the Samaritan, you remember the disciples, and you remember this, the disciples said, Lord, they didn't receive us. They didn't receive you. Shall we call down fire from heaven? Destroy them all. And the Lord said, you do not know what spirit you are of. I came to save the lost. Anyway. So these things are all seen contextually as if they were happening in Judea which is called the land. The land. If you were beyond that, you were not in the land. If you were here, you were in the land. And the closer you got to Jerusalem, the more sacred the ground became. They were very, very careful in their ritualistic view of things to keep things holy in Jerusalem. To keep things holy in and around this city. Now, Luke presents it all as a journey, figuratively speaking, moving down one way to his sacrificial death in Jerusalem. He doesn't tell us when Luke goes back, I mean, when when Jesus goes back to Galilee. He doesn't tell us when he moves out to different areas, as you find like in the account of Mark. He puts it all together as one journey. And it's beautiful to see One of the markers that we get here as to where Jesus is at this time 
I believe is in 1038. If you look at 1038, it says, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had, and she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Where were Mary and Martha? Bethany. Where was Bethany? Right outside Jerusalem. That's where Jesus often resided when he came to Jerusalem, at the house of his friend Lazarus. And so we have Jesus here. But yet when you read in other accounts, it talks about, when you read not in other accounts, in other portions of, of Scripture here, other portions of Luke, you will find that, that uh, he is still looking toward Jerusalem. Look at 13 and verse 22 where he says this, And he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. He was still moving his way toward Jerusalem. So this narrative around this parable and around this statement that the Lord makes is in and around Jerusalem. That's important. That's important. Why is it important? Because it was... At this time, and it is Josephus that mentions this. I don't know if any of you have read Josephus, but Josephus is well worth the read. He's a, he's a Jew in the first century who, who writes a history of the Jews into this time in the period of Christ. Now, Josephus mentions that at this time, there was a great stirring among all of the people and all of the land concerning the coming of Messiah. Now, he wasn't a believer, Josephus. He wasn't a, a Christian, shall we say. But he said there was this stirring in, in the land concerning the coming of Messiah and the terminology, Son of Man, which comes out of Daniel, Daniel's prophecy, was a term that they were using. A term that they were studying. The idea that the Messiah could be coming, could be in their very midst. And it stirred excitement in the land among the country people. The scribes and the Pharisees were of a different tone altogether. But here the people were being stirred about the coming of Messiah. That the Lord Jesus, or that the Messiah was coming, to whom we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. The Pharisees. Now, here in this, in the center of Jewish life, which is Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life, all revolved around this center of the land. And there we see the Lord Jesus Christ interacting with the lawyers, interacting with the scribes, interacting with the Pharisees, which gives us another indication that He is there in the land. He is there in and around Jerusalem because that is where they resided. That's where the schools were. That's where they taught them. How does this man know so much? Having never learned. He never came to our schools. He never was educated at our schools. But never a man spoke like this one. Never a man spoke like this one. So they saw him as an uneducated man. Who had never come to them, but yet he spoke these powerful words. And over and over, he confounded them. Over and over, as they tried to trip him up, he confounded them. 
in his wisdom and his understanding. For God, Emmanuel, was in their midst. Emmanuel was in their midst. So Jesus was moving in and out of the city of Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem at the time of Christ, everywhere around you, it was a very cosmopolitan city, shall we say. There you would find the soldiers of Rome marching up and down the streets. There you would see the tax collectors of Rome gathering up their taxes. There you would see foreigners coming in and out, selling their wares under strict regulations from the Jews as to when and where they could sell these foreign goods. Because the foreign goods would defile. In fact, when someone went out into another land that was, undif- was, was a defiled land, when they came back in, they had a custom that was pushed by the, the Jews, right? Pushed by the leadership. That when you came in, you shook out your garments... You kicked off your shoes. Get the dust and the defilement off of those unholy lands before you step foot into Judea. Before you step foot into the holy land. Tax collectors. You remember how they looked down on Jesus because He ate. He went into the home of tax collectors. Because He came to bring the gospel to sinners. He came to bring the gospel to them. To those in need of a Savior. Now we remember that even in Jerusalem where the temple was, even when in Jerusalem where the temple was, Herod's great temple, Beautiful, beautiful place. You remember right outside the temple, there was that fortress of Antonia. You remember the fortress of Antonia? You remember hearing of it, reading of it? There is where there was a Roman guard set up. And the Roman guard, the towers there, they could look down into the temple courts because that temple site was always seen as a place of stirring trouble. Always a place of strife. Always a place of struggle between the Jews and the Pharisees. I mean, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Between the different groups, there was always because you had these groups. You had the I don't know. This is worth even going through. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees. You had the Essenes, and you had the fourth philosophy. You had those four different groups that were in the temple area. The Pharisees couldn't agree with the Sadducees. The Sadducees and the Pharisees looked down the Essenes. And all of the three looked down on the fourth philosophy. So you had, these, you had these groups all looking down at each other. You had the Pharisees between the two different schools of Hillel and Shammah. And you had those two different schools and they couldn't get along with each other. So there was always trouble stirring in the temple courts. And the Tower of Antonio looked down over it all. And you'll remember as well that housed in the temple, I mean housed in the in the uh, fortress of Antonia, were the high priest's garments. That's where they were housed. The high priest on the holy days when he was going to officiate within the temple had to go sign out the garments. Why? To prove that you exercise your religion under the auspices of the Roman government because we allow you to. Because we allow you. This is where Jesus was. 
This is where Jesus was teaching amongst a variety of different cultures, amongst the, the Pharisees and those of, of a stern tradition. These different groups trying to decide what to cut out and what to leave. <laughs> As we mentioned, there was a stirring at this time that the Messiah was coming. It was a fear that Herod had, you remember? Herod the Great had this fear when they heard that, the, that the, a boy was born in Bethlehem of Judea and he was, there was a great announcement concerning this one. He said, go find the young child and when you have found him, bring me word that I may go down and worship him as well. It was a, an announcement of this is the one that the, that the prophets have, have talked about who is going to be born king of the Jews. And so he goes and has all the children under three years old slain in and around that area. Because of fear of the coming of Messiah. The prophetic word was really important to them at this time. It was beginning to stir and sign after interpretive sign was being seen among the people to indicate to them that the time of the end of the time of the Gentiles was approaching. The time of the end of the time of the Gentiles was approaching. And they were looking and waiting. And men came up and presented themselves as being Messiah. We recognize that, don't we? There were more than just Jesus who presented themselves as Messiah. And it wasn't an unusual thing. They had one that is recorded that was got up to the pinnacle of the temple and threw himself off. Because the Scripture had said that his angels would take him and lift him up and bring him down, float him. This was a tradition. Float him down into the center of the temple and there he would be accepted. But he jumped off the pinnacle of the temple and he went splat on the rocks below. He was not who he claimed to be. He was not who he claimed to be. And now comes this country boy. Growing up in Galilee, in Nazareth, the carpenter's son. We talked about that a little bit earlier. The carpenter's son. And he made an outstanding claim there in Nazareth, didn't he, when he went into the synagogue. This day is the Scripture fulfilled in your hearing. Declaring himself to be the, the one who had been prophesied of. The Messiah who was coming. And he began his ministry. And he began teaching. He began Performing miracles like they had never experienced before. Who is this one? Who is this one that can give sight to the blind? Can make the lame man leap up for joy? Who is this one who can raise the dead? Who is this one? Surely he must be Messiah. Surely He must be the promised One who has done signs like He has done. And yet they would ask, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Have I not shown you many signs? 
but for you with rebellious hearts, for you with rebellious souls. I will not give a sign except for the sign of Jonah the prophet. As he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall a son of man be three days and three nights in the, in the earth. And so it was in the greatest miracle of all. Jesus rose up from the grave, victorious over death. Had others risen from the dead before? Yes. But others never defeated death. They went back to the graves, unless they were translated to heaven. They went back to the graves. He had defeated death. Death lost its sting. And death died that day. And Jesus rose up from the grave. Who is like this one? Who is like this one? Who is this one who can take these loaves and these few fish and feed 5,000 people? 4,000 people? Who is this one? Who is he? He turned the eyes of the people even away from the temple. From the heart of Israel. He turned their eyes away from the heart of Israel. From the temple itself to the place of despised Galilee. And great multitudes followed Him to hear His words. Great multitudes followed Him to hear the wisdom spoken by Him. His miracles were confirming that He was not ordinary. Even the title Son of Man was showing that He was claiming for Himself Messiahship based on the portion in Daniel. Will you restore the kingdom at this time? Was the question on the hearts of many and spoken by the disciples. Will you restore the kingdom at this time? We're waiting for the kingdom to come. Will you restore it at this time? That was on the hearts of the people. You know, on a little side note, and I have lots of time for side notes because I have four minutes left, but, but the benefit of speaking two weeks in a row is I can continue next week, which is what I appreciate. But you remember the Lord's Prayer, don't you? And you can, many, Most of us could recite the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know what he's saying there? I've often heard messages, and I think I shared this with you here before, but I've often heard messages on that saying, see, this is the pattern of prayer. And as the pattern of prayer, we should approach the Lord first in worship and reverence. We should approach him first and, and show him praise and reverence, and then we continue on in our, in our prayer. But you recognize, don't you, that when he says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's using an aorist imperative. What he's doing is saying, Father, bring the kingdom. Father, bring the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Because you remember in Ezekiel 36, it talks about... 36? You can correct me later. In Ezekiel where he talks about in that day, in the day of the Lord that is to come, that His name will be hallowed. 
He says, hallowed be thy name. Bring it now. Bring the kingdom now. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he's calling for the coming of the kingdom. I was thinking this just two days ago as I was, I was walking and, and musing on some things to use Joey's term from earlier. As I was just thinking on things and thinking, my voice went to those words, Lord, bring the kingdom. And I said, in the words of, our, of, of John, the apostle in Revelation, even so, come Lord Jesus. And then this struck me. This struck me. When the kingdom comes, millions of people will die. When the kingdom comes, millions of people who have not come to know Christ will perish. And it's like sweetness, like honey in your mouth, but bitterness to your stomach. You think of Lord Jesus, and usually when we think of this, all we think about is ourselves, and we say, Lord, come, we want to be with You. And that's a wonderful thing to think, isn't it? We want to be home. We're done with this world. We, we just can't live here anymore. We just can't take this anymore. I, I wrote a song down here, and if I can find it. Oh, yes. Here it is. You know this song. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me through heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I can't feel at home here anymore. But when He comes, judgment will fall. And it's bitterness to my stomach. It's bitterness to my stomach. Do we ever think of that side? And we say, Lord Jesus, come. Come, establish your kingdom. Millions will die. Well, hard time is yet to come for this world. He will indeed divide in an age to come. But in this age as well, He is dividing. Here in our section, there's a sense in which this division has already begun. He states, do you suppose that I came to bring peace on the earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. And we must keep it in the context of where he's speaking here. He's just been speaking about, are you ready for the coming? Are you ready for Him to come in judgment? Are you being good stewards and good servants? And then he says, you don't know the hour in which He's coming. You don't know the time in which He's coming, but the fire is being kindled, and I wish, or the fire is, is coming, and I wish it was already kindled, but I must first go to the cross, and we'll look at this next week. Must first go to the cross. The question becomes, there is a divide. And that divide becomes, He, he makes it on the most intimate levels. And we recognize that today, people who come to know Christ as their Savior, some of them do it at at imminent peril to their own lives. We've known of some, we've read of some, who in some Islamic countries who have professed faith in Christ and they're dragged out into the middle of the street and stones are picked up and their parents hurl the stones at their own children. Put them to death. 
Because they've named the name of Christ. Division! Because you name the name of Christ. Suffering! Because you name the name of Christ. You will divide. Some of you have felt this division in your own families when you came to Christ. And you sought to bring the message to them because you were so excited about the things of Christ. And as you brought the message to them, you were rejected. And you are rejected even to this day. The message of Christ will divide. Divides believer from unbeliever. Divides the saved from the unsaved. Divides the forgiven from the unforgiven. Division comes. Jesus has drawn a line in the sand, as it were. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with the one who gave his life to redeem yours? What will you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? He will divide. And the answer to that question, what, you, what will you do with the Lord Jesus, has everlasting consequences. On the road to Jerusalem, the Lord spoke of the narrow gate, which through some will enter and others will not. For they didn't come by way of Jesus, come by way of the Christ to enter, but some other way. What will you do with a line drawn in the sand? What will you do with your life for Him? Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise for our Savior. Oh, Father, we know that one day judgment is going to fall on this world. We know that A fire will come. A fire of judgment will fall on this earth one day. And we recognize that in some senses it is already kindled because our Lord Jesus has been baptized with the baptism. He has given His life. He has been raised from the dead. And all that remains now is the coming of judgment. Oh, Father. That judgment will bring terrible, terrible things on this world. May we be faithful. Even though we do not know the time of His return for us in this Christian era, we do know that He is coming. And following the rapture, terrible, terrible tribulation will happen in this world. And so, Father, we ask if there be anyone in this room today who has never made a decision of what they will do with Jesus. That today they would ponder these things before it is ever too late for them. We commit it to Thee in Jesus' name. Amen.